as I was preparing for this evening, uh, I was kind of working through some different things and uh, seeking the Lord on what he would have me, have me do tonight. And I had a conversation even with Don. And uh, I told him, I'm like, you know, you really, you really don't have to ask me to preach. <laughs> I'm like, I, I'm really okay if you don't. Um, I don't, I don't mind, you know, it, it's funny because over the years, running to guys that just sit and chomp at the bit, like, man, if my pastor would just put me up there, I'd really show him how to preach, right, you know, and uh, I just, I just don't feel that way at all. I mean, I'm absolutely fine sitting and listening and absorbing and all of that, um, so I, I was especially, I don't know, I was especially concerned personally with what to say and, you know, what the Lord would want me to share. And he says, well, you know, there's a variety of different things. And uh, we talked through some of that. But I finally settled on this thing. You know, I, I finally decided that I'm getting hung up on the idea that it's preaching. And I got to thinking about my new friend, Kevin Bowen. I got to thinking about my friend that I've met since I've been here, James Langston. I got to thinking about my friend, Chanson Newborn. And I got to thinking about all these guys that get invited to share with either teenagers or men's luncheon or some event because they're missionaries. And I'm like, okay, so do they see that as preaching? I mean, do they, when they get the invitation, does somebody call and say, hey, I want you to come and preach to men's luncheon? I don't know if Don does that or not, or speak, share, whatever. But I got to think, okay, maybe that's the difference. Maybe that's what I, how I need to approach this thing. And so I decided that, look, you know what? Those guys can come and speak to, to teen, uh, teenagers. They can come and speak to teenagers, and they can just share what they're doing on the mission field, right? Maybe it's a sermon, maybe it's not. But you're there to hear what's going on where they're serving. The same is true with Chanson when he shares with us about what's going on in Forest City. Or with James, as he would share with what, what's going on where he is, or any missionary that you've ever heard. And so it occurred to me, that is no different than what we do here, really. I mean, I'm called your pastor of children and families. Mike's your pastor of discipleship. Dustin's students and young adults. But every single one of us, every single one of us is truly a missionary here. We're a missionary in Wynn. We're a missionary at Wynn Baptist Church. We're a missionary even within the framework of our own ministries, and especially so. So as I thought that through, I thought, that's what I'm doing tonight. I'm coming to present to you a little bit about my mission. Now, what I want to do is accomplish two things. I want to raise a little awareness about that, but I also want to share a little bit more with you about myself, because one thing that occurred to me in, the recent, uh, in recent months, really, is that there are some aspects of my testimony that, that many of you do not know. And I've noticed this recently as Mike has been borrowing this chair. Um, this is my chair, by the way. And many of you, or some of you may not know that, but this is my chair, and Mike borrowed it to scoot around uh, the hallways with his lame foot because, you know, he's, because he's hobbling around. I mean, it's a shame we make him do announcements every week because he has to hobble up these steps one at a time on a casted foot. Are you serious? So I loaned him this chair, and I also, let's see, Kirk, is Kirk, I don't know if Kirk's here or not, uh, but I loaned it to Kirk also. I loaned it to a pregnant woman a few years ago who broke her leg, but this chair is my chair. 
This chair is where I resided about 10 years ago. I shared this story briefly, anyway, with our children and Wednesday kids not long ago. You see, one morning I woke up after having weeks and weeks and weeks of symptoms to find myself paralyzed from the chest down. And so I got out of bed that morning, and let me just tell you that prior to that morning, I spent days and weeks agonizing in pain. I felt like my body was sunburned all over, and I had not been in the sun. We were approaching the spring, and I got to the point as we were preparing for VBS in my church, and at this time I was serving in Germantown, and we were preparing for VBS and coming upon that week and realizing I could not step up any steps at all. I found myself sliding down the wall to get down the hallway as, those, as that week was approaching. And you know, everybody's a doctor, right? So everybody's got a, an, an assessment for you of what's going on. You know, I was told by, you know, my caring friends, of course, oh, you've got shingles. You've got shingles. My grandmother had shingles. My husband had shingles. Everybody had shingles, and so you must have shingles. You know, and of course, being the Googler that I am, I would go online and start looking at things, and I'm like, oh my goodness, I've got symptoms for MS. You know, I've got symptoms for a variety of different things. Well, it turns out, by that day when I woke up, I had been diagnosed with Guillain-Barre, and maybe you're familiar with that. And I can remember being, I can remember being diagnosed with Guillain-Barre and looking that up and thinking, okay, this is not so bad. Guillain-Barre has a 90% recovery rate. Guillain-Barre can be extremely debilitating, for sure. But Guillain-Barre has a pretty good recovery rate only to discover that I actually had been misdiagnosed and then to later discover that I was diagnosed with two things. Not only the Guillain-Barre, because those are the symptoms I had, but I also had symptoms that did not fit that, but the symptoms of the Guillain-Barre didn't fit the other thing. So one morning when I got out of bed and I stepped over to my dresser and my, I tried to walk on my feet, I fell to the floor. And on my way to a doctor's appointment, I found myself in a wheelchair, borrowed wheelchair to get to the doctor's office only to discover that by that afternoon I was going to be admitted into the hospital and just shy of critical care. You see, I had this thing called transverse myelitis. And what that is, is it's the myelin around your nerves. So if you're, you know, like an electrician or something, you understand that electricity runs through a wire and so there's insulation around the wire and it protects that current. Well, the same is true in your body and so around your motor nerves, sensory nerves, all of that, you have what's called myelin that goes around all of your nerves and it keeps it from cross-firing. Mine was being destroyed right around C4, C5. And so as a result, my motor nerves, sensory nerves, all of it. It's why I felt sunburned all over. It's why I was hypersensitive to, to cold and heat. It's why ultimately I couldn't walk and just barely, uh, just shy of being unable to breathe on my own. And fortunately, God did, not, God did not allow that to be the case. To make a long story short, Ultimately, I found myself in and out of the hospital, developing blood clots in both lungs. I found myself in rehab. And it was an inpatient rehab facility. And it's in this facility where I discovered what it feels like to lose what feels like your dignity. It's in this rehab facility that I learned what it means to better minister to aging parents for example, or grandparents. 
because I realized in this facility that I was the youngest person in the facility. Most of the people that I was around had a new hip or knee or you know something like that, and so <laughs> here I was just unable to walk, and we're all in wheelchairs, and we'd go to dinner together, and we'd go to our rooms together, and I did not want to go to dinner with anybody. When I was in the hospital waiting to go to this facility, I can remember reading the pamphlet and it reading like a, uh, like a resort. You know, I'd read through and it's like, yes, we love to dine together and uh, our residents, they call you residents, our residents spend time playing games together. You know what that means? Bingo. We played bingo together. Now you might like bingo and if you do, my apologies, I do not like bingo nor do I like checkers. Those were my options, bingo and checkers. And I would get, I mean, I'd get skunked at both of them. And as a side note, these older folks that I was with, they cheated, all right? <laughs> they cheated a lot. I'd sit there, and I, they didn't even call out, you know, five numbers yet. Somebody screamed bingo, and I'm like, what? that's impossible. How could you possibly even have bingo, even with the wild space? And the reason is because people donated all these items, and so you could get a lap blanket or a desk or some toothpaste or something like that. And everybody, I mean, they have it up there. It's like going to the counter at Chuck E. Cheese with all the little stuff that you get with tickets. And so if you got bingo, you got to pick. Well, if you got it first, you got first pick. And I'm like, I can't believe these people. No ethics whatsoever. No moral whatsoever. And I'm sitting there, I never won anything. But I learned also what it felt like to have to be taken care of. I learned what it felt like to no longer drive. I learned what it felt like to be unable to do things on my own. To have somebody help me do the things that are the most private things. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about, too. Some of you have been down that road, and I really struggle on whether to share this, because, you know, there's a lot of things I haven't had to deal with in life. I haven't lost a spouse. I haven't lost a child. I'm not praying for a sick baby. You know, I'm not praying for a heart. There's a lot of things in life that I'm not having to deal with. So I don't, for one minute, think that the time I spent here in any way equates to what so many have had to deal with. But what I did discover is what it feels like to have a paralysis in life. And I believe that God taught me in that process a contrast of a paralysis in life physically and a paralysis in life spiritually and the other end of that spectrum. Because these also belong to me. These are my most recently purchased running shoes. They barely have any dirt on them at all. I love them. I love the color. I love the fit. My wife got upset because I bought them without telling her. Gerald, you know what I'm talking about? I mean, they're running shoes, you know, you gotta get a deal if you really want them, anyway. This is on one end of the spectrum and this is on the other. Paralysis, <laughs> productivity, right? Process, whatever P you wanna pick, really. There's two ends of this spectrum and I fear that the church and more specifically Christians find themselves closer to this side in their life than they do to this one. Churches find themselves closer to the paralysis of their spirituality than they do the productivity of it. And that's concerning. That's deeply concerning. I sat in rehab for over a month and ultimately was moved into an apartment 
that they have at rehab, and it's designed to teach you to live with a disability. It's, that's its purpose. The bed you're taught to make, the kitchen appliances are all low so you can reach them from a wheelchair. They took me to the grocery store and took me shopping to teach me how to do this. I sat and watched videos on how to equip your car for handicap accessibility, and it was ridiculous. I, I laughed the whole time. I, it, was, it was insane because it was like a 1975 Monte Carlo, and I didn't have that. You know, I mean, nobody drives that, right? And, I mean, some of you might. I, I don't know, but I, I didn't. And so I'm like, I'm laughing, and the lady's like, Mr. Mayno. She paused the video, and it was a tape, right? She paused the video. She says, Mr. Mayno, I don't think that you understand the seriousness of your situation. Really. I said, ma'am, I said, look, you know, with all due respect, I understand very clearly the seriousness of my situation. But I also understand very clearly that God has told me I'm not going to remain here. I'm not. I'm just not. And you'll have to forgive me for making fun of these things. And I said, but you really are in no position standing there <laughs> to tell me that I don't understand the gravity of the seriousness of the situation that I'm in. I wasn't in denial. It was very clear to me. It was evident to me. You know, and I, we didn't have social media then, or I would have been all over it. You know, I'm I tweet a little and, you know, Instagram some and all that. And I would have just been all over that in rehab, but it didn't exist at the time. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 says this. From verses 12 through 18. First Corinthians 12, verses 12 through 18. For even as the body is one, and yet has many members. And all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. And we were all made to drink of one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, because I'm not a hand, I'm not a part of the body, it is not for that reason any less a part of the body. And if the ear says, because I'm not an eye, I'm not a part of the body, it is not for that reason any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? And if the whole body were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. If you read on through, there's more description of that, and you get to verse 27, and it says, Now you are Christ's body, and individually members of it. Father God, I pray, Lord, that you would bless the hearing and reading of your word tonight. God, I pray that you would continue to give me words to speak. Give me clarity of thought. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So what we have is this contrast. Obviously, what I told, and I don't even, I really don't remember her name. Obviously, what I told the lady that was in charge of car videos, that I, what I told her was true. God did not leave me seated in this chair. I don't know that I can tell you why. For a long time, I really have questioned a lot of things about that experience. I've wondered exactly, you know, it's not wrong to 
question God. I mean, he's, he's certainly bigger than our questions. It is, I believe, wrong to accuse God. But I think that God is um, certainly big enough for our inquir- inquiries. And so to inquire of the Lord of what we're going through is not a, a big problem, I don't think. It's when we start accusing God of why did you do this to me and who do you think you are that we find ourselves like Job and needing to brace ourselves for God's response. But there have been times when I've wondered, God, why in the world, why in the world did you allow this? What is it that I'm supposed to learn? And there's a lot of facets to that. I do think it's interesting, though, much of my medical history has come into play for, um, for example, Keith with your sister. You know, I'm able to talk with her about some of the procedures she's experiencing and I mean, to know, in no way, the same level of what she's experiencing. Please don't misunderstand me. There's no way that's equal. But some of the, just some of the tests, the infusions, the different things that she has to do, I've experienced. So there's something about being able to sit down with a nine-year-old girl and look her in the eye and say, little girl, I know exactly what you're experiencing. And I hope that that bring, brings comfort to her. It brings comfort to me, if nothing else, because then I start to see, okay, God, I'm seeing more of the purpose of paralysis here. Or being able to sit in a nursing home and talk freely with somebody and understand the feelings that they have of no longer being able to drive or take care of themselves or, for that matter, even feed themselves. You know, let me just say, in rehab, everything's individually wrapped. It's ridiculous. So if you're paralyzed... And I was a quadriplegic, which means you have impairment in all four limbs. I'm not to insult your intelligence. I'm just saying that somebody says they're a quadriplegic, that's what they mean. Even if they have some function, if they have impairment, then that equals, you know, if it's in all four limbs. And I had that. So I found myself not being able to use my opposable thumb with these three fingers. And it has to do with the way, you know, your tendons work and these two fingers here and everything else. And so what I found myself doing is taking a fork and putting it in the palm of my hand and scooping as best I could and bringing it up to my mouth. You know, I was bullied all through, all through elementary school and junior high. Well, I got bullied in rehab too, by the way, because I wouldn't wear a bib. You know, you're supposed to wear bibs. They have these big terry cloth bibs, and it looks like a breastplate, and it's powder blue, and it goes on like a, I mean, just like a baby. I mean, it's not like a fancy lobster bib. I mean, it looks like, I mean, it's, it's, it's a towel. And so the first day in rehab, and we go to, you know, dine together, because that's what we do. I wheeled up to the table. There's no chairs. And I wheeled up to the table, and I sat there, and the lady comes over to give me a bib. And I said, no, I don't need a bib. She's like, oh, are you sure? I'm like, positive. I made the biggest mess I've ever made in my life on my clothes since I was two, probably, that day. I spilled Salisbury steak, mashed potatoes, all down my shirt. And this lady in rehab with, a, with two busted knees, I mean, she's like this way. And she comes wheeling over and she says, that's why we wear bibs. And she wheeled off. <laughs> no kidding. True story. I felt like, I'm like, oh, man. I wore bib like every day after that. You know, I just felt awful, you know. But here's the thing. When I started, and I didn't really want to go to the dining hall, but when I went there, I started to connect and talk to different people. I was able to share my faith. I was able, you know, I had, I had Jewish physical therapists and things like that. We would talk about Christ, Messiah. There's all these opportunities. I, ironically, I had to have this thing where they put you in a platform and they hold you up, and it's basically to try to train your legs. You know, you have to learn to walk again if, if that's going to happen. And for me, it did eventually, but not in rehab. And they put me in this 
this thing, and it looks like a big giant pulpit. And so I would just pretend to be preaching to everybody. I would just bang on it, you know, because there's nothing else I can do but stand. It's just banging. It's basically hanging there and, you know, letting the tension do its thing. And so I would just, like, talk and say things out. So I had all these really fun experiences in the midst of this tragic situation. Eventually they sent me home. And that was frustrating. Because while I did believe and know that God told me, you're going to walk again, I did not know how long that would be. And so for what felt like an eternity, I wheeled around my house, I got frustrated, I yelled at my family. And when my chair, this chair, was delivered to my door, because I had to wait for this chair a long time, I picked this chair out myself, it's really special, you don't even know, it's got all these cool things about it. Kaysen picked the color. He was a little bitty fella. This chair was custom made for me. Three days later, it was delivered to my door. Three days later, I took my very first step. There's not a day that goes by that I don't put a pair of shoes on that I don't think about that. Not one day. And there's really not a day that I'm running that I don't think about that. To go from paralysis to progress is an amazing thing. It really is. It's an amazing gift that I believe God has given me. What about our ministries? What about the ministries here in our church? What about the ministries that we're attached to? And specifically, my ministry. You see, and this is where I'm gonna this is where I'm gonna pitch for win kids a good bit. Because my fear is that we run a risk of being paralyzed in our ministries. My passion, of course, is our kids and our families. But it's true across the board. It's true in all of our ministries. It's true in our adult Bible studies. Mike and I talk all the time about things that he envisions for our Bible studies, our adults. You know, we'll talk a little bit about, you know, I wish I could get, you know, an adult aboard about this or that. Or somebody's really passionate in this area, but this person, I don't know, they're not getting the vision yet, whatever. I mean, we don't, I mean, we don't talk about you badly. We just talk about you, right? It's all with love. It really is. And the same is true in my area. I think, you know what, man, if I could just get people to love on babies the way that I envision loving on babies, that would be so much. That would be so great. And I don't just mean little bitty babies. I just mean across the board, from birth to sixth grade. Now, if you're a personality like me, it doesn't matter if you're rolling in the floor looking at bugs with a two-year-old or you're sitting with sixth graders talking about why all their friends cuss at school. I find joy in either of those environments. I really do. I know that that doesn't apply to everybody, I do. But man, there is a niche. There's a niche for you to fill. Whether it's kids ministry or something else, there's a niche for you to fill. What does the Bible tell us? That God has given us a part to play. He's given us a role to play as a part of the body of Christ. He has assigned that to us. We have this responsibility. We have individual jobs to do. One of the things I learned when I was paralyzed 
And it was one day when I was, I told somebody I wasn't going to say the word naked, but I'm saying naked from the pulpit. I was laying almost naked in the floor. And I was crying, and I was almost in the fetal position, and I was laying there, and I was banging on the carpet. Jennifer came in. What is it you need? What can I do? And I said, I don't know. Just leave me alone. That's what you can do. You can leave me alone. And I laid there and cried. And I cried, and I cried, and I cried for two hours. And I laid there, and I thought about, eventually, I thought about this scripture. And I thought about the position I was in, that I was laying in the floor, and my mind, my head was telling my legs to move, and they simply would not do it. My head was telling my hands to function, and they simply would not do it. My head meant everything in the world. It had everything focused on getting the task done through my body. And my body refused to do the task. And that frustration overwhelmed me in that moment. I had, I had tried to do something on my own. I had fallen and I had crawled myself out of the bathroom. And that's where I found myself laying in the floor with that epiphany. And it, in the most real way possible that I finally understand or feel like I finally understand the frustration that God must feel, or the frustration that Jesus must feel to have written that Christ is the head of the church, that Christ is the head of the body, and that God has assigned specific roles and responsibility for his body to do and participate in and accomplish as an individual unit of that body, to lay there and realize that my head was telling my body to do something that my body would not do. And for the first time ever, I realized that must be the frustration that Jesus experiences, experiences as the head asking the body to do things that the body simply refuses to do. Man, that's where we are, church. That's where so many of us are. You see, the thing about it is, this is a, this is a spectrum from here to there. This is simply symbolic of, of running a race. These shoes are going to be used to run a race, a literal race. I'm going to use them in. Hebrews 12 tells us to cast off all that entangles us, the sin that entangles us, the weight that entangles us, and run the race set before us. That's what we're admonished to do. Never. We're not going to find, just sit and, and die and wither away. I love Mike says all the time, God didn't, you're not going to find retirement in the Bible. He says it more aggressively than I do. But he does say it. The frustration that Jesus must feel, it's real. And I feel like I experienced it. You see, there's this breakdown of communication. And it's not because the head is not communicating. It's because the body is not responding. It's because my body was not responding to the head. And the same, I think, is true for the church. And perhaps it may even be specifically for you. Maybe you, yourself, feel paralyzed spiritually. 
And maybe not totally, but maybe you're closer to this side of the spectrum than you are to that one. You know, what's the problem there? What's the problem with response to the Lord? And another thing that happens in the process of that paralysis is there's this, this adaptation and dependence. And see, this is where the whole body suffers because just like I explained with the fork, having to hold the fork in a weird way, something else had to do a job it wasn't designed to do. My fingers are supposed to hold a fork a different way. I'm supposed to move around the earth on my feet, not on wheels. My body has to compensate for the things that are failing in my body. And the same is true for the church. What happens is when every part doesn't, or every, every piece of the body doesn't play its part, other parts of the body have to compensate. And so that's when you get the 80-20 rule, where you've got 20% of the people doing 80% of the work. And we hear that all the time in churches or in presentations, and it's you know, statistically true in so many organizations, but it should never, it really should not ever be, I don't care if it's true across the board and everything else, it should not be in the true, should not be true in the church. The truth, the truth is the church should be 100%. Everyone doing exactly what God has called them to do. Everyone doing, everyone playing the role that God has called them to play. And therefore coming together and being that unified unit called the body. I should not have to be adapting for your lack of service. And no one else in the room should have to be adapting for your lack of service because you're denying the head the orders that he's given. So there's this adaptation and dependence for that matter that occurs when we find ourselves spiritually paralyzed. And then there's also frustration levels and stress. You talk to anybody, and I'll tell you what, I do talk to a lot of people but I talk to a lot of the same people also. Because I find myself, when, I, when I'm looking to have something done or when I need something taken care of in our ministries, for example, the same go-to people come into my mind. Why is that? Because those are the people that are always doing things. We should not be operating under the principle that if you want something done, ask a busy person. That's a worldly concept. That's paralysis. We should be operating with, man, our body is 100% functioning. We can just about ask anybody. And this job's either going to be done or they're going to find somebody who can do it. That's where we need to be. Not on a level of frustration because something's not happening the way it should happen. That just stresses more the body. That's going <laughs> to... That's going to pull muscles that aren't meant to be pulled. That's going to stress joints that are meant for something else because they're having to, com- but they're having to compensate for what's not being done. And so they have extra stress on them, just going with the physical aspect of the illustration. But it's true spiritually too. It stresses people to the point that says, you know what, I'm done. I don't want to serve anymore. I've put in my time, right? I don't want to do what he's asking for because that's babysitting. Can I tell you, I absolutely hate the word babysitting. I do. I hate it. I hate it. I hated it anyway because 
I hate it when people say, oh, are you babysitting the kids today? Meaning my own. Like, no, for crying out loud, it's called parenting. I'm their dad. I don't, you, parents, dads don't babysit their own children. That's ridiculous. I'm a parent. And it's called parenting. And I understand what they mean. I get it. But what we do here, what we do from birth to sixth grade, is in no way babysitting. We're discipling. We, as far as I am concerned, and as long as I am at Wim Baptist Church and have any say in the matter, our purpose here is to disciple our children at every stage of growth, at every life development we possibly can. In order to do that, we need disciplers. One person cannot do that. Two people, three people. The people we have cannot fully do that. They just can't. Do you know that we're introducing families into our church strictly through our Win Littles area? Win Littles, in case you don't know, I'm going to give you some terminology. Littles is what we call little people. This is birth through not quite kindergarten, but the age range varies depending on when they enter kindergarten. It's basically our preschool and nursery area. We call them Win Littles because they're little. We call Win Kids really everybody, but we're usually talking kindergarten through sixth grade. We have a term called Wednesday Kids, and it's a play on words because it's W-Y-N-N-E, Wednesday. We do it on Wednesday nights, but it's Wednesday Kids. See, there's this whole theme there. We have this thing called the orchard. That happens, if you go out this door, I'm going to be like Mike, if you go out either side and you go around the thing, if you go out this door right here and you go up the stairs, it's the first room on the left, what you may traditionally remember as being the children's church room. And incidentally, we don't do children's church. <laughs> we do children's discipleship for two hours. But the orchard is that room. And it's in that room where, you might not know, but kid leadership happens. Now, it needs some work. It needs some tweaking. It needs some disciplers. But when kids come into that room, with the exception of their story time, they are essentially kid-led. Did you know that? Our church is on the threshold of setting up kid leadership like you've never seen before. We have kids working projection. We have kids leading music. We have kids doing dramas and skits. We have kids that come up here every week. They meet as part of our orchard team and prepare for Sunday in the same way that your worship team does, that the choir does, or anybody that does anything in big church. Kids doing that. Easter Sunday morning, three hours we had we had a situation where we needed to provide discipling care, right? Not babysitting, but we did need to provide a provision. We needed a provision for our children. And so what we did is on those three hours, we did the exact same thing because most of those children were not going to be there all three of those hours. Now, you know, mine were, you know, let's just be honest. I'm here all three hours, so are they. But I saw the coolest thing. You see, we've got a kid who's in kindergarten. We've got a kid who's in kindergarten, and his mom texted me and told me, you're not going to believe what my child is doing. 
When my child comes home on Sundays, they set up their room. It's an empty room, so I don't know if they're using Legos or stuffed animals or what, but they're setting up their room to be like the orchard. They're standing in front of their toys and leading their toys in worship. How cool is that? So we've got a kindergartner doing that. So Easter Sunday morning, we needed to figure out, okay, we've got parents who are serving. Because, you know, we have this rule, parents are supposed to serve in that area. They get, they're on the rotation, which is, you know, it's a great rule to have. I mean, we need that. And we've got people that aren't parents that do it because they just love, they want to do that. And, man, we're thankful for those folks, too. Easter Sunday morning, we had a time where they could come in and sing. And so those, those children came in, and I watched. I watched with my own eyes. I wouldn't have believed it if you told me. And you might not believe me when I'm telling you, but I watched with my own eyes. I watched kindergartners and first graders. I watched them stand up in front of two-year-olds, three-year-olds, and four-year-olds and say the very words they were used to hearing said to them by older kids. Not adults. They're imitating older kids that lead them in worship on a Sunday morning. And I watched them lead these two-year-olds in worship. I went home, I told Jennifer, I'm like, you're not going to, I told him exactly what I, I told her what I told you. I saw kindergartners leading, and I thought, that has got to be kid leadership on the very youngest possible level. Now, can they be left on their own? Absolutely not. I know. Can they be trained and taught? Absolutely. Why do we want to do that? Because I always have adults tell me, I'll do anything you want, I just don't want to lead anything we do not want to raise more followers we want to raise more leaders we want to teach children now that they're a part of the body of Christ and that they have a role to play so that when they're sitting where you are in big church listening to some madman up on the pulpit they won't be sitting there paralyzed spiritually but that they'll recognize that there's a race to be run. They'll recognize that there, is, there are things to cast away. There are things to move out of the way. There are things that they need to do. We want it to be ingrained in them. We want, we want it to be a part of their DNA as they grow up. And as God draws them to himself, which, is, by the way, is also happening I'm seeing parents lead their children to the Lord and, and then question whether they did it right. <laughs> I'm like, man, your child came to the Lord. How, you know, how did you mess that up? They know what they need to know. There's a lot of things that and I just don't have time to tell you. I just don't have time to tell you all the things that are going on, the things that are coming your way, the things that are coming for parents, the things that are coming to help teach them to lead children to the Lord and their own, but others as well. We're going to capitalize on baptisms. We're going to capitalize on Lord's suppers. We're going to do all these things so that parents can help. It's a perfect time to lead your child to at least have the conversation about your child coming to Jesus. When they come home and they're mad because they couldn't take the Lord's Supper, that is an opportunity to explain to them why and what it is. For crying out loud, go buy some matzo bread and grape juice. Let them taste it so you get that out of the way. At the kitchen table, remove the distractions so that you can meet the spiritual. 
cast off that that weighs us down. Run the, way, run the race that is set before us, ladies and gentlemen. I've got a list of things you can do, but I'm not going to give them all to you now. You can pray, though. You can pray for those children. You can pray for their families. You can pray for their parents. You can pray for the workers that already serve with those children. You can pray for our ministries. You can encourage. You can encourage those people that you know are already serving. Oh, let me back up. And you can pray for yourself and how God would have you function within the body and where you fit, where you, not fit, but where you fall upon the line on this spectrum, exactly where you would place yourself. And then you can ask, where do you need something? Man, we need people to check kids in. If it's nothing more than check a box that they are here, we need that. We need somebody to stand at the door with a smile and say, I'm so glad you're here. We need somebody to stand at a door that provides safety so that, and this happened, so that when a parent, not a parent, when a family member comes in looking for a child that they are legally and court ordered not to see, somebody stands in the gap for that child and their benefit. You realize we have more and more foster children coming into our, our environment here. We must keep them safe. Maybe it's teaching. Maybe it's leading one of our grow groups. I didn't even define that term for you. Maybe it's being a storyteller. Maybe it's helping to mentor another child in leadership. Whatever it is, I promise you, we can find a role. It could be a thank you note. There is something, something everybody can do to move us just a few steps further away from paralysis and faster in our race, pressing forward and onward. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much, Lord, for the opportunity to be here and speak these words. God, I pray for our church. I pray for our staff. I pray for our, I do pray for our kids, but I pray for all of our ministries, Lord. I pray for the people sitting here tonight, and God, you didn't bring any of us here by accident. Father, I don't know where people are. I don't know where they are on the spectrum how close they are to paralysis or how close they are to productivity. But Father, I know that this is an opportunity now, Father, for us to find ourselves in a moment of prayer and repentance. And God, I just ask for that now. A time of commitment even, Father, to you to function as part of the body that you've called us to function as. Lord, may we be at 100%. Lord, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name.